I really feel like God is doing such a deep thing in the, in the life of this church, and it's so encouraging to see. We just had some amazing testimonies of, of people trusting God for financial breakthrough and God coming through, and uh, it's, 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 it's such a joy to see that. And we're going we're gonna to see Richard baptized today. It's a delight to see God moving in people's hearts and people's lives. And I'm so thrilled and I'm so encouraged what God is doing. And so I want to preach this morning again out of Ephesians. Can we go please to Ephesians chapter 3, the first six verses. Um, this is still seems to be ringing a little bit, uh, Callum. And again, my message is quite simple this morning. I just want to look at three little things. And for those of you that are visiting, we've been doing a series out of Ephesians. And uh, if you'd like, you can get onto the podcast, onto the webpage, and you can catch up on some of the messages because they're all kind of, they're all locked together. And for me, something of what I'm going to say this morning is not new, but I don't apologize for that because Paul, whenever he writes a letter, he's not afraid to punch home the same point over and over again because he wants us to get it. All right? And so when we look at Ephesians chapter 3 this morning, you're going to see there's some things that he's already said in the first chapters that he says again. And he says from a different angle because he wants us to get it, all right? The three things we're going to look at this morning, and the title of this message is simply this, God's prisoners, God's stewards, and God's ministers. As Paul uses those three words to describe himself. He says, I'm a prisoner for Christ. I'm a steward of his gospel, depending on what translation you're reading, and I'm a minister of his grace. Isn't that beautiful to describe yourself in those terms? I'm a prisoner to Christ. All that he has done. We know we sing that song, I'm bound and yet so free. What does that mean? It means we are a prisoner to righteousness. We've been made, we have been captivated by Christ. He's radically impacted our lives and changed our hearts. And we've been, no, we're no longer slaves to sin, prisoners to sin. We are now prisoners to righteousness. We are slaves to Christ. We're slaves to the gospel. And I don't mean that in an in a Arminian-driven way. I mean, it's, we are simply slaves to the truth. We are now kingdom of, in the kingdom of light, no longer in the ki- kingdom of darkness. And so last week, we had a look at Ephesians chapter 2. And uh, we saw how Paul describes the church as a city, family, and a building. Do you remember that? And we had a look at those things and how there's this growing sense of intimacy. Uh, we know we're not just in relationship with each other like in a city where we belong to the city of London. No, it's more intimate than that. It's actually we belong to a family and family knows each other and they're brothers and sisters and all different people in family. And it's actually even more close than that because it's like Paul says, no, it's living stones, brick upon brick. Building, the building is going up stone by stone and all the stones are different. They all need it. And so all of them are beautiful. And I said last week, there's all different nationalities and colors and backgrounds and personalities. So whether you're loud and outgoing or whether you're shy and introverted, whether you're tidy or whether you're untidy, whatever your personality is, you're part of this amazing thing called the church when you're saved into Christ. And he's building us all brick upon brick. And I said, they're not just, uh, it's not just like, you know, boring blocks of concrete that are all exactly the same, exactly dimensioned, same dimensions, and they're just laid in neat little rows. The church is much messier than that. It's like uh, someone once said, in the church is the order of, 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 of the birth, the birthing unit. It's not the order of the graveyard. If you want that kind of order, then the church is not that kind of place. It's a maternity ward. It's where things are happening and there's life and there's blood and there's wonderful cries, but it's all about birth. It's not about death. 
So what does that mean for us? Well, all of us are part of God's church. As soon as we saved, we are part of the universal church. And then we find our expression in the local church community like this. And as we are rooted in the gospel, God roots, roots us into a community where we can walk with each other, where we can enjoy each other, where we can get up each other's noses and irritate each other and learn that there's some things in us that need to change. Isn't that true? I've been reading this delightful book, and I want to say to you, um, we're going to be doing this course next year called Laughing Your Way to a Happy Marriage. And it's a, it's a beautiful, it's, it's delightful. And it's by a guy called Mark Gungor, who's an American guy, and uh, he looks at some of the physiology that's different between men and women. Do you know that a male brain works differently from a female brain? (laughs) Did you know that male eyes see physically, see differently to female eyes? Did you know that women have more peripheral vision than men do? You see more when you drive. You're not better drivers. You see more when you drive. Do you know the classic thing? Have you ever had this for those of you married where you, the husband says, I can't find the salt. And you go to the cupboard and he looks and he looks and he can't find the salt and then the wife comes along and she just opens the cupboard and she gets straight to the salt. Have you ever, have you ever had that experience? And women think, oh, men are so muddle-headed and they can't find anything. And Well, actually, I'm getting totally distracted now, but anyway, <laughs> it's because men's eyes work like binoculars. And when we look, we go up and down and in rows like this. And a woman's brain is able to process the whole cupboard in one hit. (laughs) And she sees exactly where it is. So woman, you're not better, you're just different, all right? (laughs) But it's a delightful, delightful course, and we're going to do that next year. So I just want to give some of those little tidbits because... um, we just, I was reading in our bedroom. I was just lying on the bed reading these things, and we were laughing and laughing and laughing because we just identified so much with these things that are just physiological differences. But what I was I saying is that we are all part of the church. Uh, whatever, whatever your gifting is, whatever your journey is, whatever your personality is, you are an individual stone that God is building into his church. We had a look also at Nehemiah, remember? And I just said, I love that picture in Nehemiah where the wall is being built and there are goldsmiths and perfume makers and politicians and men and women and children and families. And they're all building the wall together. It's such a delightful picture of the church. Now, I've spoken about the third chapter of the church uh, in the last month as well. And that I felt like God gave that to me on, on holiday. And I, I believe that we are already moving into this third chapter for this church. And uh, part of that for me is that God is stirring every heart of every single person to find their place and to find how they fit into the wall and to find what their calling and their gifting is and to start to live that out. And for me, that is really about the priesthood of all believers. And I spoke to you a couple of weeks ago about being more responsible as a congregation in terms of doctrine and in terms of discipline and in terms of living as a community, that there is some implication when we say a priesthood of all believers, there's an implication for the congregation as well as for the leaders. It's all of us have to rise to a new level of maturity in Christ. Every single one of us. All of us have to get healed. All of us have to deal with our insecurities. All of us have to let the Holy Spirit in to change us from the inside out so we can become members of this congregation that are adding value to what God is doing in this kingdom. Yeah, amen. So with that in mind, can you please look with me at Ephesians chapter 3? We're going to look at the first six verses. I'm reading, as usual, from the English Standard Version. Paul writes and he says, For this reason, 
are Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus, on behalf of you Gentiles, uh, and then he breaks off a little and he says, assuming that you've heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me, it's like a little in parenthesis there, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation, as I've written briefly. And when you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, as it has now been revealed to the holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Amen. I'm so glad that's true. I'm so glad that I don't have to be a Jew to be part of God's church, to be part of the kingdom. There's nothing I have to do. I can just be myself and accept what Christ has done, and I'm part of his church. That's it. Beautiful. If any of you have ever doubted about some of these things, this is so plain. This is so blunt. This is so obvious. I hope that it ministers to you this morning, all right? So Paul uses this first little phrase. He says, I'm a prisoner for Christ. I'm a prisoner of Christ. It's like in, Paul, in Ephesians chapter 1, you remember Paul, he, he starts and he begins to um, pray for the Ephesians, and then he gets distracted in Ephesians chapter 2, and he begins to expound on the great greatness of our salvation and the exceeding greatness of God's power. And then he begins to speak through what God has done and he's created a new Israel in the church. And then in chapter 1, he comes back and it's like he wants to start praying again. And he says, for this reason, our Paul, Christ, uh, our Paul, uh, Christ's prisoner for you Gentiles. It's, it's like he's about to return to that prayer that he started in Ephesians chapter 1, but he gets distracted again. He's always getting distracted. And if you read the, the whole book, he gets to his prayer again in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 14, where he says, I bow my knees before the Father. And so he's kind of digressing a little again as we enter into this portion. So why does he digress again? Because it's, he really wants the Ephesians to understand what it means when he uses this term, I am a prisoner, being a prisoner for Christ. What does that mean? And he drives this point home again and again. And as I was preparing this week, it struck me, it's an amazing image to use. This thing of being a prisoner. He describes himself as Christ's prisoner. I mean, here's a man who was bound by the law. He was a Jew of Jews. He was, he was the, uh, the, 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 he'd, he'd risen to the highest ranks of the Sadducees that you could possibly get. He, he describes himself as, as a pure Jew in every way. That's his background. That's his heritage. And God had set him free from that law completely. God had set him free from his murderous past. He had been pursuing the church and murdering Christians. That's where he had come from. And now he describes himself as a prisoner to Christ. Don't you find that interesting? He describes himself as a slave to Jesus. It's uh, these words, prisoner, slave, and all, they're negative to us. They've got negative connotations. But, but Paul rejoices that his sole joy, his sole motivation for his life is an indebtedness to Jesus. Man, that's a profound thing. Saying, all I'm living for, all I'm, my future, my, the, the, the desire of my heart, the fullness of what I'm living for is because I'm a prisoner to Christ. Because of what he's done for me, I cannot live any other way. This is what I'm aiming at. 
That's why Jesus said, one who's been forgiven much loves much. When you've been set free from murder, when you've been set free from the law, when you've been set free from, from things that you would be too ashamed to admit to anyone, when you are saved, you love much because there's such gratitude in your heart. So Jesus gave all that he might have a relationship with Paul and with you and with me. And Paul finds himself in this total place of delight, happy to give his all, to relinquish his personal ambition, to relinquish his goals, to forego all those things and be delighted in Christ. And he's delighted to share that gift with the Gentiles too. So it's to that end that Paul devotes himself with all his energy and as a slave, as a prisoner to Christ's love, to Christ's goodness, shown to all humanity. That's the image that he's trying to uh, describe. Very powerful. And you know what's even more amazing is that we know from Acts chapter 20, verse 31, that Paul had spent three years in Ephesus. And so he might not have even known personally all the recent converts in Ephesus, especially in the outlying areas of Ephesus. But it's like he's saying, I'm giving my life for these people, even though he didn't know those people. So he probably never met some of them. But why did he do that? Because he knew that Christ loved them. So he gave himself to those that he didn't even know that he could love them with the love of Christ. It's an amazing thing. And so Paul says in one of, one of his letters, he says, follow me as I follow Christ. And his life as a, an apostle, his testimony of his life, is a picture for us in terms of how we should, what we should maybe aim at. As, as we live. And I, I find it personally incredibly challenging to say that I, I, can, I, I don't know if I can wholeheartedly say with Paul that I'm Christ's prisoner for the sake of others who don't know him. That every agenda of my life is focused on that goal, to completely live for Christ. But I think, and I hope you would agree with me in terms of your own life, that as, as we begin to walk more intimately with Jesus and day by day, we walk in a deeper walk with the Holy Spirit, and He's beginning to make that desire the desire of our hearts. And it's imperfect, and it's not yet complete, but it's growing, and it's becoming more and more and more in us. So I hope you can agree with, with that, because I, I feel like that's part of the journey that God is taking us on. And so that's how we become part of this building. That's how we become part of this family, the family of the church, the universal church. And something of the fruit of the gospel in our lives, and what I believe God is taking us into in this third chapter, into this new season, is a, a people that are wholeheartedly devoted to Christ. Prisoners of Christ for the sake of others. Amen. Now, the gospel actually is simple. <laughs> I, don't mean, I don't mean that condescendingly. I just mean, you know, God entrusted his gospel to fishermen and to tax collectors and to ordinary men and women. And it's not that difficult. It's simple. And God wants us to receive it like children and to live it simply into the community. So that's the first picture that Paul uses to describe himself in this portion. He says he's a prisoner of Christ. The second picture he uses, he says, I'm a steward of God's grace. A steward. It's an amazing word, stewardship. Um, 
And again, Paul is using it to describe himself in terms of how God sees him and how he sees his gift in relation to others. And so, so often we can, our identity is formed about, uh, through what the world thinks, we think the world deems to be significant or important, rather than what God says of us, <laughs> and by the joy of giving our lives away. I mean, the gospel is completely opposite to the spirit of the age. The spirit of the age is get as much as you can for yourself and blow everybody else. And the gospel is completely opposite. It says you limit your blessing in your life, in a sense, because you want to give what you have away to others. And you don't live for yourself. You live for others, and you live for that day, one day, when we'll appear before God, and he will reward us and say, well done, good and faithful servant. It's completely different. It is radically offensive to the world. It is a scandal, the gospel. So Paul uses this word to describe his ministry, and he says he sees himself as a steward. And uh, the Greek word is oikonomia. And I'm probably not pronouncing it right, Maria and uh, George, but forgive me. It comes from oikonomos, which means an estate manager. It means a steward, a person in charge of a household. Uh, and Mike used to work on Serge Hill. He was the estate manager there. And uh, who's, who's working? Uh, Russell. Russell is working as an estate manager right now in Radlett. And what does that mean? It means that you are stewarding someone else's estate and you are dispensing the supplies of that estate where they are needed. So Paul uses that picture to describe his ministry. And he says he is a steward of grace. He's a steward of the gospel. He's dispensing the gospel where it needs to go. He's taking God's supplies of salvation and he's giving it away to different people. He's preaching the word. And so Michael Eaton says, he uses this, he says, the word, the work of giving out God's gospel supplies is what Paul is involved in. He's handing it out. He's saying, I'll preach where it's needed and I'll give this away and I'll speak of the great salvation, the, the unsearchable riches of Christ, which he describes later. And he says, that's what my business is, is to dispense that wherever it is needed. I'm a steward of the gospel. I love this picture of stewardship. You know why? Because it has nothing to do with ownership. Paul never says he owns the gospel. Now, well, he does say it's my gospel, this revelation, but there's no ownership in it. It's stewardship. It's giving away what God has entrusted to you. It's a profoundly different motivation. Amen? And in 1 Corinthians 4 verse 1, Paul uses the same word again, steward. He calls himself a steward of the mysteries of God. And he says in verse 1, this is how one should regard us as servants of Christ and as stewards of the mysteries of God. So again, this picture of being entrusted with the treasures of the gospel. What's clear from this portion too is that Paul, he, he makes it very clear that God has called him to this ministry. He hasn't looked for it himself. He hasn't gone out and said, I am an apostle. No, no, no. He's, God has given this gift of grace to him. And he says also in other portions, he says this is true of other people. Other people are also stewards of the gospel, stewards of God's grace. He writes to Titus in Titus 1 verse 7, and Titus he calls my, my true son in the faith. He had a special relationship with Titus. And look what he says to Titus. He says, he's talking about being an elder. He says, for an overseer, uh, there's different words, biskopos, uh, poimeno, which describe the office of an elder. He says, an, an overseer, an elder, is God's steward. Again, it's stewardship. It's not ownership. Elders don't own the church. 
Jesus owns the church. It's His. We are stewards of the church. Man, it's completely, that set me free. I don't have to build this church. Mike doesn't have to build this church. Jesus builds this church by His Spirit, and we are stewards with Him. We just cooperate where we can. That's beautiful. Well, it is absolutely beautiful. And he says, an overseer as God's student must be above reproach, must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or drunkard or violent or greedy. He describes some character qualifications. And then Peter uses the same word again in 1 Peter 4 verse 10. He says, talking now about us as believers, he says, as each has received a gift to serve one another as good stewards of God's grace. We are all stewards of God's grace. Every single one of us. And he says God's varied grace. And then he he qualifies it in verse 11. He says, whoever speaks, like preachers, speak as one who speaks the words of God. Yeah? Then he says, whoever serves, serve as one who serves by the strength that God supplies. Yeah? You don't serve in the church to look good. I don't serve in the church to look good so that someone recognizes my service and say, well done, good and faithful man. We'll promote you to deacon. We'll promote you to elder if you really serve hard. Did you hear what he's saying? He's saying, no, we don't serve in the church with any other motivation, but we serve with the strength that God gives us. And because we have his grace, it is easy to do. We're not doing it to please men. We're doing it for him. That should set us free. Every single, I trust it sets you free this morning. And then it says, serve as one in the strength that God supplies in order that in everything Christ might be glorified in Jesus. Amen. To him, the glory and dominion forever and ever. So Paul and Peter have a profound understanding about a very simple thing. Whatever the grace gift is on your life, whether you are, God has called you to be an apostle like Paul, after the example of Paul, or an elder, after the example of Titus, or a saint. All of us are called as saints in the household of God. We all have been entrusted with an amazing privilege, a powerful gift, and that is the good news of Christ in us, both Jew and Gentile, and we are stewards of that grace, and our responsibility is to make it known to every single person that we can. And we're now in verse 3. Paul says he hopes that the Ephesian church are going to get it. He does. Because, uh, sorry, is it verse 3? Yes. He says, um, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation, as I've written briefly. When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ. So Paul is hoping... You see, he doesn't own this church. He's not dictating to them. He's hoping that they're going to get what he's about. So he says uh, this revelation had come recently. I mean, this is the first century. So why does he use those words uh, that this revelation has come recently? Uh, He's he's saying that this revelation has become especially clear during this time now of the apostles and prophets. It's not that it was entirely unknown before, that had never been revealed. He's saying the fullness of this revelation has now come, and I'm describing to you the fullness of this revelation, this mystery, that Christ has now made a way for the Gentiles to be part of the church. That's what he's saying. The Old Testament prophets had written about it and prophesied about it, but now 
in the, under the teaching of the apostles because of what Christ has done with the coming of the Holy Spirit, it's become especially clear, and we can see it very clearly. And we can see in the Old Testament there are pictures that are pointing towards what Paul is writing about. Moses had written about, um, about Christ, and the prophets had prophesied about Jesus. And God had even promised to Abraham in Genesis tw- chapter 12, verse 3, he said, through you and your offspring, every family on the earth shall be blessed. So God, Galatians tells us that the gospel was, was spoken about in advance and through Genesis 13. That's what it says. Genesis 12, verse 13, verse 3. Gospel was already spoken about when Abraham made that statement. That through all, God made that statement to Abraham that through his life all families on the earth would be blessed. Isn't that amazing? God has had an eternal plan of salvation that we are now walking in. And the other passages like Ezekiel 36, which refer to the church, also in the New Testament, Acts 15, other portions. So Paul is confident, he's saying, that as the Ephesians read what he's written in the first two chapters, in chapter 1 and chapter 2, and as they study it carefully, and I trust that as we're going through Ephesians, you are reading in your own devotional time, and you are trusting God to make it clear to you what Paul is saying. Yeah? And Paul is saying, I'm confident that as you read and study what I've written, the Holy Spirit is going to make it plain to you, and you're going to see that what I'm saying is true. That's what he's basically saying. And that's true for all of us, isn't it? It's as the Word of God becomes real, becomes real inwardly by the power of the Holy Spirit in our lives, as we read the Word of God with what we have already been given when we, when we receive Christ, we receive the fullness of the Word. That's why 1 John 2.20 says, you have been anointed by the Holy One and you have knowledge. I write to you not because you do not know the truth, but because you do know the truth and because no lie is of the truth. So John is saying, no, actually, when you receive Christ, you receive the fullness of the word. Also, Paul says the same in 1 Thessalonians 2, verse 13. We thank God constantly for this, that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you who believe. Amen? So we read the word. We receive the fullness of the word in Christ when we come to salvation. And Christ fully comes, the word fully comes into our lives. And there in a sense, the truth of Paul writes here, and he says, you will be able to perceive, you will be able to understand and grasp what I'm saying is, is truly insight into the gospel. So Paul's saying two things. When we read the word, revelation comes to us, and the Holy Spirit makes that revelation real, and there's a witness in our hearts. And, and when you read it, the Holy Spirit, you have this, this unction, and yes, it's true, I know, because it's, it's resonating in me with the truth of the word of God that I've received. Am I I making it clear? Yeah? So that's what Paul is saying. And Paul carries on, and he says, it was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, it's now been revealed to to his holy apostles and prophets. And the the revelation that has come with new clarity is what we talked about last week, that the Gentiles are fellow, fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ through the gospel. And so I want to just say again, uh, when Gentiles, you and I are Gentiles, we're not Jews. When we come into the church, we come with full equality. The Mosaic law has been done away with completely. It's been abolished completely. So has the special position, the national position of Israel. has been done away with. Because Christ has made a new and living way completely free from the law. 
In the church, we are completely free from the law because of what Christ has done. And we live by the Spirit, not out of fear of punishment because all of our punishment has been taken upon Christ on the cross. We live free from fear. We live free from compulsion. We live lives by the power of the Holy Spirit as He inwardly transforms us. We walk by faith day by day and He makes us more like Jesus. Amen. (laughs) That is the gospel. If you've been trying hard for all your life, I want to tell you it's not the gospel. The gospel is your righteous deeds are as filthy rags, but there's one who covers us with his righteousness completely. It takes all the pressure off. You don't have to try to be a very good husband. You know that? No, you just have to be a man whose heart is soft to the Holy Spirit. And if your heart is soft to the Holy Spirit, you will become a good husband. You don't have to struggle all your life and do 50,000 courses on how to be a good husband. Scripture says you have one teacher, the Holy Spirit. If you soften your heart to the Holy Spirit, He will lead you into truth and you will become a good husband. Same of wives, even though they might be better drivers. (laughs) Just open your heart. Just soften your heart. Let Jesus change you. From the inside, of course we can get advice. I'm not saying that we don't need advice and don't need each other. Of course we do. But hear what I am saying. Not trying hard. Today I will be a good husband. And then already you get out of bed and your, your wife asks you for a cup of tea and you blow it already. <laughs> I don't get it. I don't get it. People who say you can lose your salvation. What does it mean then? Does it mean when you're a good husband and you're behaving well, you're saved? And then suddenly when you're a bad husband, you're not saved anymore? So you go saved, not saved, saved, not saved. What an anxious way to live. What an unbelievably pressurized way to live. That's not the gospel. That's not freedom. It's for freedom that Christ has set you free. And now I'm getting distracted. But anyway. So what does that mean for you and me? This thing of the new revelation of the gospel of grace and his word growing in power in our lives. Well, I want to encourage you that it should, it should, should enable us to be patient in prayer for family members that are not saved. It should give us great boldness to take that prophetic word to someone in the office who you know God has given you something and you're just a little bit nervous. Speak that word. Or just to take a meal to somebody that you know God is saying, I want you to go and bless that person. I believe as we all step out in the power of the Holy Spirit, He will give us the words to speak because His Word is living in us. And we can simply speak His Word. And lastly, and I'm closing, Paul then says in verse 7, of this gospel, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace which was given me by the working of His power. Though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to me to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things, so that through the church the manifold wisdom of God might be made known to rulers, authorities in the heavenly places. Paul says he is a minister. Paul didn't choose himself. Jesus seized him. 
Jesus blinded him. Jesus knocked him off his feet. That's how radically Jesus chose him. That's what we read in Acts 26. That's his conversion experience. It's not, it's, it's a radical conversion. This murderous Jew who is, it says, he's breathing out murderous threats against the church. He's rushing around trying to persecute the church. He's on his way to persecute the church and Jesus confronts him on the road and whack, he falls down. He's blind and Jesus says this to him. Well, in verse 16, if you read it, Paul, Paul says, who are you, Lord? He realizes something <laughs> amazing has just taken place. And the Lord said, I'm Jesus whom you're persecuting. Amazing. When we persecute the church, we actually persecute Jesus. That's what the connection is. Paul's been persecuting the church, and Jesus says, no, you're persecuting me. But rise and stand on your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose, to appoint you as a servant and a witness to the things in which you have seen um, which, in which you have seen me and to those in which I will appear to you. So that's his, that's his conversion experience. It's absolutely amazing. You know the thing is, he doesn't immediately begin to minister. He goes away and there's a period of 11 years that Paul is just being set free from all of the stuff that was part of him, all of his heritage, all of his, ba- his background. And we read in uh, Acts 11 that it's Barnabas that goes 11 years later in AD 45, he goes and he finds Paul in Tarsus, and he says, come, I want you to work with me in Antioch with the Gentile Gentile believers. Amazing. Period of 11 years that he doesn't minister. See, God was doing a deep work in Paul, and it required the full working of God's power. And that really, for me, as I was just preparing this week, I thought, you know, our time frames are so different from God's time frames. It's like, when we get saved... And it's good to have passion. We want to, yes, God, we want to, we want to do some stuff for you. We want, to, we want to help to change the world. And God says, good. And then perhaps you wait for 15 years. Like, well, didn't you call me? And you begin to, no, God's just got a process that he's committed to in our lives. And he's going to, he's going to, he's committed to that process. Which, I want to encourage you, don't get frustrated if you feel like you're not in the fullness of your calling yet. I I think of Jesus. I mean, Jesus was the perfect Son of God, sinless perfection, living amongst us. Thirty years he was prepared, and he ministered for three. Uh, That's not comfortable maths, is it? Thirty years of preparation, and then three years of ministry. Uh, Even for the Son of God, there was a season where he was readied. He was made ready for what God was calling him to and to fully grasp the purpose that God had for his life. My point is simply this, as we talk about ministers of the gospel, on one level we are all called to be ministers of the gospel and on another level there's a unique way that you are called to be a minister of the gospel that is not the same for me and for Helen and for whoever, Joshua. But as we walk with him day by day, Allow him to shape us by his word. We will begin to understand the fullness of the calling that he's calling us to. And God is not only interested in your talents and your gifts, he's interested in your character. And for me, the kind of, the, the soberness of reading the, of reading the scripture is like, when you think of someone like Moses, at age of about 40, he murdered, he'd risen, through, he was part of the Egyptian elite, he murdered someone, goes into the desert for 40 years, and then 
by the time he's about 80, he's ready to be used in the purposes of God for his life. And he comes back and he leads the people out of slavery. We don't like the 40 years part. We want instant service. We want instant glory. We want instant stuff, don't we? You think of Joseph, another example. Betrayed by his family, thrown down the well. Taken off as a slave. In Egypt for years. Faithfully trying to just make a life for himself. Unjustly accused of rape by Potiphar's wife. Thrown into jail again. Is faithful in jail. And eventually rises to the position of prime minister of the land. And God uses him to deliver everybody else. His people. It's amazing. It is amazing. We don't like the years to wait, do we? we some, some, I don't know if you like me. I'm, I'm too impatient. But the point about Paul also is that he never faked anything. He didn't pretend that there was power when there wasn't power. He simply preached the word of God. And God used him because of the grace of God on his life. And just to conclude, we read in verse 8, it says, Paul recognizes, he says, I'm very least of all the saints. And I don't think that's a false humility. He recognizes that he has great revelation. He recognizes that he has great authority. But he knows, too, that he was a persecutor of the church. And so with great humility, he says, I'm the least of all the saints. And he really means it because he knows what he's been set free from. So we are all prisoners of Christ. We are all stewards of his gospel. We are all ministers of his grace. All of us are called to walk in authority of what Christ has done on our behalf. And all of us are called to walk in humility, knowing that apart from the grace of God, we have nothing. <laughs> we have nothing to preach apart from the grace of God. So, none of us, not all of us are going to be preachers like Paul. But all of us can be preachers of the gospel through our lives. All of us can be preachers of the gospel into our families, into our communities, into the relationships that we have. And in that sense, we are called, all called to be salt and light. And in that way, we are all evangelists. And I love Tim Keller. He, he, uh, I saw this quote this week. He's speaking about evangelism. He said, evangelism is the most basic and radical ministry possible to any human being. This is true not because the spirit is more important than the physical, but because the eternal is more important than the temporal. What we are living for that day when we will present many to Christ on that day because of our lives, that's what we're living for. That's what's really important. Amen?